You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Again, now I don't just say this because some of us recently did a murder mystery party, uh, but there is a wildly popular TV genre out there called crime and detective dramas. I'm not particularly into these, but shows like NCIS, Sherlock, and Law and Order, and many more, which are up on the screen, are all built around the premise that there is suspense in finding out who did a particular crime or a particular action. Uh, But what I think really draws people to these shows isn't so much the who, but it's the why. It's the motive. Uh, Often these shows journey deep into the human psyche and the human soul and heart and show us just how powerful inner motive, things like jealousy and greed and revenge and bitterness, how strong and powerful those things really are, but in a more positive sense. We'll see Paul, this missionary, urgently and courageously and boldly and humbly going all over Greece and talking about Jesus Christ. Uh, The resurrection had deeply impacted his life, and it led to his inner motives— his, his inner thoughts, his controlling purpose being changed forever. And that's really my big idea this morning, quite simple, that the resurrection changes everything. The reality that Jesus got up from the dead was and still is revolutionary. It changed Paul's life and it turned the Roman world upside down. And still today, it transforms lives and turns the world upside down. Now, my outline is going to be up on the screen, and it's going to be pretty straightforward, pretty simple, and it goes like this. Number one, the resurrection and the scriptures. We'll see that in Acts chapter 17, 1 through 15. And then secondly, the resurrection and the marketplace. We'll see that in verses 16 through 34. Now, before we dive in, as I usually do, for those of you uh, who maybe are just uh, popping in here for the first time, or maybe those of you who've been kind of in and out over the last couple months or years, uh, we have been studying the book of Acts as a church. The book of Acts is in the New Testament, and it essentially is the origin story of the Christian church. The book starts just after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He tells his followers he's going to go away in just a little bit, and in a few days he's going to send his Holy Spirit to empower them, to allow them to bear witness, to be his spokespeople to the ends of the earth regarding his resurrection. Some days goes goes by and Jesus ascends, and just like he said, the Holy Spirit comes in power. It's an outer power that brings this kind of inner wonder, and the church is rebooted. The church is relaunched. They're filled with resurrection life. They're marked by a love for one another, by generosity, excitement 
to share the gospel, this Christian message about the resurrection. And so as the book of Acts continues, as we've been studying over the last few months, we see the church grow by the thousands. Every week, thousands and thousands of people come to faith in Jesus Christ, both Jew and non-Jew. And we see dozens and dozens of churches planted around the Mediterranean world. Then a few weeks ago, we saw how God's Spirit, through the church, selected two specific people, Paul and Barnabas, these key leaders, to send them to other areas, particularly Greek and Roman areas, to share this message of God's grace, this message of God's unconditional love and mercy for the world. And they're there in what we would say is modern-day Turkey for about 18 months. This is commonly called the first missionary journey. Then last week, we saw Paul and two younger Christians, Silas and Timothy, and they go back through modern-day Turkey, uh, but this time they go into Greece, modern-day Greece. And this is commonly called the second missionary journey. And thousands of thousands of people there also become Christians, and hundreds and hundreds of churches are planted all over the world as well, which really brings us to our wonderful passage this morning, the continuation of this second missionary journey, where we meet Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they're in Greece, and they're on the move. The idea is that the resurrection was turning the world upside down. The resurrection was making all things new. It was compelling them. It was motivating them. And it was giving life and hope to all. Now, I get this first point, the resurrection and the scriptures, because in these first 15 verses, Paul's going to be primarily engaging with Jewish people who have trust in the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. They would have been the Bible believers of the day. They had reverence for the scriptures. They worshiped God. They had the same background, we might say, as Paul the missionary. And so let's look at this first point, the resurrection and the scriptures. Verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So Paul and Silas arrive at Thessalonica. It would have been quite the sight to see. It was a very large city, and there's a synagogue. Synagogues are essentially the places where Jews go to congregate, to worship, and to learn. Uh, even then, there were thousands of synagogues spread around the Mediterranean world. Essentially, anywhere you went, you could find a synagogue. And this is always the first place, as we've seen, as we've been studying the book of Acts, this is always the first place that Paul goes. Uh, they had already believed in the Old Testament. They would have had categories for the Messiah. They would have had similar beliefs, kind of starting beliefs as Paul. And so it's a very strong place to establish footing in a new community. Verse 2, And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So this is pretty standard Paul. He goes into a city or a town, and he first goes to the synagogue. He wants to share the good news that the Messiah has come and that his name 
is Jesus. But the problem we find as we read the pages of Acts is that the expectation and the belief of the Jews back then in large part was that when the Messiah came, he would be a military ruler. He would be a political savior. He would come to smash the Romans and make Jerusalem the capital of the world. For the Jews, the Messiah was blessed. When they would have heard the Christian gospel at first, it would have made zero sense because they understood the text, the Old Testament, regarding the Messiah to be saying that the Messiah was blessed by God, that the Messiah was protected by God. But Jesus was abandoned by God. God turned his face away from Jesus. He was cursed by God. He died on a cross. It was a sure sign for the Jews that he wasn't the Messiah, that he was sinful, that he was not protected by God. Now, Paul, the missionary, would have thought previously just like this. But then he saw Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. And that changed everything. His life was turned upside down by the resurrection. And he realized that if Jesus was the Messiah and at the same time was abandoned by God and cursed by God, it wasn't because Jesus was sinful. It was because of somebody else's sin. And then he begins to read the pages and think about the pages of his own scriptures. He thinks about Isaiah, where in the opening part of the book of Isaiah, it talks about a strong and a mighty Messiah. But then the second half talks about a suffering servant, one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. And all of a sudden, Paul begins to think this could be the same person. Or maybe he thinks about the 16th Psalm, where the psalmist takes comfort in the fact that God will never abandon his soul, that God will never let his soul see corruption. And then he starts thinking about how the psalmist is in the ground. And so maybe this is about somebody else. Maybe this is about the resurrection of the Holy One. Or maybe he thinks about the 22nd Psalm, which he would have heard that Jesus quoted while on the cross. Verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The person in this psalm cries out to God, but God turns his face away from him. He suffers. His hands and feet are pierced. His clothes are auctioned off. Only his mother is mentioned. And then he's rescued. God raises him up. And the result is that people praise God. And Paul finally realizes the Hebrew scriptures are about both the suffering servant and the glorified Messiah. The resurrection changed Paul. It opened the whole Bible for him. The meaning of the sacrificial system, the temple, the covenants, the law, David and Goliath, all of that finally made complete sense. It had a cohesive core in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that the Messiah is a suffering Savior. He's got a cross before a crown. He's a redeemer before he's a ruler. Now, the same is true for us. A good application for us this morning is that if we really want to understand 
the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, we really need to understand the Christ. If this morning we think that Genesis is primarily about Adam and Eve, and Jonah is primarily about a whale, or that David and Goliath is primarily about courage in the face of adversity, I want to gently and graciously say they're not primarily about these things. The Bible is a book about Jesus, about the Messiah who came and died for us because of us and was raised powerfully from the dead. When we understand that, the book begins to open up. It begins to have a cohesive center, begins to have a narrative that we see through Genesis to Revelation. And when the Bible opens up, Christ opens up. Our hearts can grow deeper and deeper into the love of God. And so Paul's there, he's explaining the scriptures, particularly these Old Testament scriptures, a book all about Jesus. He's dialoguing with them. He's making the case, and he's doing this everywhere. But then consider the response at Thessalonica, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So some believe these devout Greeks, these leading women of the city, but then some of the Jews are jealous, probably because of power and influence were being lost, and they form this kind of protest mob with some wicked men of the rabble, that is the riffraff, the common folk. And then they attack the house of Jason, possibly a relative of Paul, verse 6. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So providentially, Paul and Silas are not at Jason's house when this mob comes. So instead, this very angry mob drags Jason, we assume as a Christian, and some of these other young Christians before the city officials. And notice two things. They're shouting That the people, number one, they're shouting that the people who turned the world upside down are in their town. Now, this is a huge compliment for Christians. This is a compliment of the century if you're a believer. Why? Because we believe that this world is on its head. And when Christianity takes root in somebody's heart or in a community's heart, it really transforms. It starts to take an upside-down heart and turn it on the right side up. It starts to take an upside-down world and turn it on its right side. I don't have to make a case that this world is on its head. You simply turn on the news, simply turn on, uh, log on to Twitter, and you will see that this world is on its head. But the gospel, when it begins to work in our hearts, when it works in our souls, it can put things back into order. Secondly, notice they're shouting that these Christians are defying the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, 
Jesus. They're, they're essentially just twisting Christian beliefs here. They're trying to say that the, the Christians were treasonous uh, because they're saying that God is number one. Uh, maybe they were mishearing Paul. Maybe they were intentionally or unintentionally twisting his words, but they're missing the point. Uh, Paul teaches that we should honor the king, that we should honor the government, we should pray for the emperor, we should submit to uh, the laws of the land so long as they're not violating God's will, but he also says that Jesus is above it all. He's the ultimate king. Every knee will bow, and those things certainly exist in tension, and it's Really good news this morning, as we think about this passage, we're reminded that God is king. Not the president or the next president or the next president, not our boss, not our family's expectations of us. God is king. Jesus is on the throne, and he knows us, and he's the king who cares. They take some money from Jason, perhaps like kind of a bail Arrangement here in verse 10 says, The brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now we're going to essentially see the same exact thing happen here in the next town uh, that we just saw essentially happen in Thessalonica. Paul's going to engage with those who believe already in the scriptures, kind of the Bible believers of their day. And he's going to talk about how all the scriptures point to Jesus. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. And then we see a very similar pushback in verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul leaves. He's done that twice now. It's a good reminder for us this morning that we're not always called to stick around and be a martyr. There are often times when, when it is wise to not stay in the fight. This reminded me as I was reading it this, uh, this week that there was a, uh, a, a time in my life where uh, many years ago I was in the jungles of uh, a Southeast Asian country and I was sharing the gospel uh, to a nice little village somewhere in the southern part of that country. And all of a sudden I start seeing these young guys, maybe 23 to 24, probably my age at the time, and they're starting to get really, really loud. And I could tell they're really angry about something. Uh, they were shouting at me and pointing to me, and my translator turns to me and says, they're really mad. And I said, why? He says, number one, they think you're saying God and Mary got together and had Jesus, which is blasphemy. And number two, they're saying that God doesn't create people with blonde hair and blue eyes. And so I said at that point, it's time to go. Let's get in the truck, and we zoomed off. And this is very similar to what Paul is doing here. He's using wisdom, and it's not always uh, wise to stay in the fight. Instead, he's going off to see another day. He goes to Athens, which really leads us to the next point here, the resurrection and 
the marketplace. Now, I get this because in verses 16 through 34, Paul's going to be primarily engaging non-Jewish people who have no trust in the scriptures. We might call these the seculars of the day or the non-religious of the day. Uh, They didn't worship God. Uh, They didn't have the same background as Paul. And he's getting ready to engage them as well. Verse 16, Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, Athens was a massive city. We would have called it a cultural and academic hub of the ancient world. And inside the city were hundreds of thousands of these statues, both public and and private places to gods and goddesses. And when Paul sees all of this, he's bothered. He's bothered because he wants those people to be free and to have the hope that's found in knowing Christ and knowing the true God. And so what does he do? Well, we see in verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons. But notice what's highlighted here. He starts engaging in the marketplace, verse 17, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, that word marketplace is what's, uh, what we would call the, the, Greek, uh, the Greek agora. The agora was essentially a town center. It was the media hub. It was the political hub. It was where the courts were. It was where shopping was. It was where business and investment was. Uh, ideas were debated there throughout the day and throughout the week. Uh, the, the philosophies of the day and the policies of the day were often discussed there in the Agora. And notice Paul, he's not afraid to go into this. He knew the gospel isn't just something that is about private, personal peace and personal reconciliation to God. He also knew and believed that the gospel was for the public square, for the marketplace. He doesn't just take off his Christian clothing and put on neutral clothing. He's not afraid, and he dives right in. And notice the way he dives in is that he reasons with them, verse 17. That is, he doesn't just come and say, this is how it is. He listens. He asks good questions. The idea here is that he is dialoguing with them. He's really getting to know their points of view. It's a great reminder for us that engagement as believers in the public square, whether you're in the world of media or politics or policy making or the arts, whatever it might be, It's a reminder for us that engagement in the public square should be marked by both integrity and humility. We don't hide our Christian faith or our Christian convictions when we go into the real world, when we go into the workplace. We don't just take off our Christian clothing and put on neutral clothing in order to fit in. Everybody comes to the public square, so to speak, with clothing, and as believers, we come with integrity, owning who we are, and a God who has rescued us. And notice also he, he comes in humility. He doesn't come in pride. We don't just demand people submit to the truth. We listen. Uh, we try to understand where they're coming from. We ask good questions. We try to gently show where there might be inconsistencies. Uh, most engagement in the public square happens to be like this. It's not proclamation. It's reasoning and really engaging with people, listening to people, and honoring people. 
Notice sometimes people are not so nice. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Uh, They're mocking him. With the risk of overgeneralizing, the Epicureans were basically the relativists of the day. Uh, They thought that the purpose of life was to maximize pleasure. Uh, Their philosophy could really be summed up in the motto, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. Now, the Stoics were just the opposite. They were the moralists of the day. They believed in absolutes. They believed that the meaning of life was to be virtuous and noble. The meaning of life was to not let life get to you. Uh, When pain came, Stoics would say you needed to harden yourself. You don't cry. You don't grieve. You did what it take. You did what it took to be strong. And that was essentially the meaning of life for a Stoic. The text continues, verse 18. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they bring him to the Areopagus. This is kind of a council or a board, so to speak. The gospel was gaining attention and they wanted to know from the mouth of the source what it was all about. And now he's going to give this speech, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, theref- what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he starts his speech and he says that he realizes that they are very religious. Just like the Jews, everybody worships something. Everybody's trying to find hope and identity and security and validation and, dare I say it, even salvation in something. And he says that when he was strolling through the city, he found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now, we don't know why that was there particularly, but it's possible that this was built by maybe some polytheist guy who was doing what we would call their due diligence, uh, just in case there was a God that perhaps they missed. But Paul sees this as a sign. It was a symbol of the fact that they know that there's a God there that they don't fully know. He saw it as a sign that they sense that God is there, yet they're not able to identify who that God precisely is. And he says he's going to now reveal that God to them. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So first he says that God is much, much, much bigger than any of the gods that they have. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Second, not only was this God uh, above everything that they had, much bigger than everything that they had, but he's not dependent 
on anyone or anything. He's self-sufficient. He's endless. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Thirdly, he says that God is in control of everything. He's made the nations. He's marked out their times and their history. The idea there is that everything is under his control, that he's much, much bigger and grander and greater than any God they had previously imagined. But then he says something interesting. He just said that this God is bigger and stronger and more powerful than anything they ever conceived of. But then in verse 27, he says this, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Said another way, he says that this God is the most high God, the most powerful God. He's self-sufficient. He's above any conception of other gods. But not only that, he's an intimate God. He's nearby. He wants human relationship. He wants human fellowship. He wants a relationship with you. He goes on to quote one of the philosophers and one of their poets, verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, notice what he's doing here. Many books, many articles have been written on Acts chapter 17, and particularly this encounter here at the Areopagus. He's saying that they actually do know this God, that they actually do have a sense of this God in their hearts. He's saying that in in some of their own writings, in some of their own poems, in some of their own philosophy, they have written about a God like this. They've conceived about an all-powerful God, a supreme God, a God who's so big and worthy of our worship a God who's beyond anything that they could dream up. What he's not doing here is saying, here are five proofs for the existence of God. He's saying, I'm going to prove that you already know him. I'm going to prove that you already know that he exists. He says to some degree that they sense him, that they feel him, that they can see the clues of God's existence in their own writing and their own thinking and their own actions. So he's not trying to say, here's this God. I'm going to try to prove him with multiple points. He says, I'm going to try to prove that you already believe he exists, that you already believe that he's out there, that eternity is in your hearts. Now, this is a really, really, really important point. He hasn't opened up the Bible. He's not talking with people here who trust the scriptures. He knows where they're at. He's not trying to drag them onto his turf. He's humble enough to try to understand where they're coming from. It's important for us this morning because a lot of people out there don't have the same starting point as us with the Bible. But as believers, we have this great opportunity to show people that many of the things that they do, many of the careers that they've chosen for themselves, much of the work that they do are all built on the fact that they know that there's a God. That deep in their heart, they know there is a supreme power. 
a God who is almighty and a God who wants to know them. For instance, human rights is a great example. Justice is a great example. If you're fighting for the human rights of women in Afghanistan, are those just Western human rights you're fighting for? Or is there a universal basis for human rights? What basis do you have to fight for the dignity and the human rights of women if a country's majority thinks otherwise? If you're working to bring warlords to justice, are you just imposing your Western morality on their actions, or is there a basis for universal justice, right and wrong? What if they don't think they're immoral? A lot of people in this world ignore the inconsistencies in their own thought system. They realize there's not much a basis in their beliefs, but they fight for human rights and dignity and justice anyways. So much of what people do and how people think is based on the fact that God is there. They know he's there. They act and do things as if he's there. And their beliefs are totally inconsistent. Their work is completely inconsistent apart from God being there. And Paul's making that case here. He's showing us a great way to help people to find God to show them that so much of what they do and so much of what they hold up as personally important to them and believe it can only be true if there's a God, if there's a supreme power. He concludes, and now he gets straight to the point. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says the gospel is that there is a super powerful God who is above all other gods and he wants a relationship. And for them, it meant repent. Do an about face, turn from idols and turn to God. Trust him. Stoicism said that human beings were essentially moving towards being absorbed in the universe. The Epicureans said that humanity was moving towards extinction and non-existence. But Paul here says that humanity was moving towards one day facing God, forgiving an account for every word and every action. And the proof for all of this, Paul says, is verse 31, the resurrection. Notice he doesn't say it's in the green grass of the spring. He doesn't say it's in the stars or the planets. The proof is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An idea that would have been so unbelievable and so wild to the ears of many of them, but an idea that if it's true, then God is real and we owe him everything our very lives. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear him again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. 
Now, I have just two very brief takeaways from this very interesting passage. Number one, the gospel is a multifaceted message that connects with multifaceted people in a variety of different ways. In other words, the gospel can speak to people on many different levels. It's versatile. It can help make sense of the world better than any other idea out there. It can meet our deep longings. It can even heal deep pain in our hearts. A great example of this is what when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, it was the bigness, the, 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 the bursting meaning of knowing God, the, the purpose of the resurrection and faith in Christ that really moved me. All the things I was trying to do up until that point were not giving me meaning, and I finally saw it in knowing him. But in contrast, when my roommate came to faith in Christ, he was a very anti-authority kind of guy. He didn't trust people in authority. And it was God's authority, which he finally saw so clearly in the gentleness and in the wisdom of Jesus, that he finally found something worth following. We see this when we see baptisms. Usually people will come up front and they'll read their story about how God impacted their life, how the resurrection transformed their life. Uh, we see this when perhaps people talk about how God has taken a, a great deal of uh, emotional pain from them, or God has uh, given them uh, relief from particular guilt or shame. It's a multifaceted message that connects with multifaceted people in a variety of different ways. Second, I want to talk about how Christianity is all about the resurrection. Christianity is all about the resurrection. Next week, Paul's going to go to Corinth, and he'll later write them a letter called 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 15, he addresses the resurrection, and he says this, verse 13, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. What he's saying is that if Christ has not been raised, then this is all useless. It's not, oh, if the resurrection isn't true, well, then church is still a good thing. It lets me connect with good people. It lets me have accountability. It gives me community. It gives me a place to find a spouse. It gives me a place to find close friends. That's all the secondary stuff. That's not primary. There's probably more practical ways to do all those things. He's saying that if there's no resurrection, then the Christian life, the Christian church, all of it is useless. Serving, giving, creating, relating, being one under Jesus Christ, all of that would be meaningless. It would be built on a lie. But the resurrection is true this morning. The tomb is empty. The stone has been rolled away. The world is welcome in the arms of God. The disciples were tr transformed from these fearful and scared and anxious people into confident and bold witnesses. Over 500 people saw him. The church came on the scene rapidly 
and quickly and turned the Roman Empire on its head. And when you read the New Testament, you don't see the marks of deceivers or dupes. You see the marks of people who have been transformed and changed by the resurrection. It's the amen to all of God's promises. It's the hope of this world. As we move to a time of the Lord's Supper, we get the chance this morning to celebrate this resurrection with our senses, with our taste, our sight, and our smell. We get a chance to remember Jesus' words, it is finished, and we get a chance to respond in song to the hope we have in the resurrection from the dead. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.